You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Chapters 1 through 11 of Deuteronomy, broadly speaking, really more 5 through 11, is co covered general principles for the law of Moses, the, the things they were to keep in mind as they read them. And, but in chapter 12 through 26, you have what are called specific instructions, where we've gone past the broad themes, such as the Lord your God, the Lord is one, you shall serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, all of that. Now we're getting specific, and he gets real specific in verse 1. We come across this weird rule, you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. This is one of those things that applies to us, but it does not specifically apply to us because this isn't something that we tend to do. I was getting a haircut today and they had on the TV an advertisement for uh, guys that want to remove the gray hairs from their facial hair and it basically was a tube of mascara that said men on the side that they could brush on their, on their beard. So rather than cutting our, our hair off, we maybe have the opposite problem of vanity. But what he's getting at here is that it was a common pagan practice at the time to mutilate or disfigure yourself as an act of mourning for someone who had died. You see a little bit of this in 1 Kings 18 with the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel. When they're calling out for Baal to answer them, it said they lacerated themselves until the blood flowed because that's how you get the attention of a pagan god, which is a usurping demon, is through pain and through blood. Consider the fact that our Lord Jesus came not demanding our blood, but shedding his own for our sake. What a difference that is, right? But what is more important to hear than the rule itself is the reason that it was given. And this is really how this structurally functions. He gives them one provision out of nowhere and explains why. He says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. He says, you are a people, holy, which means set apart to the Lord your God, his treasured possession. Israel was to maintain a distinct culture separate from that of the Canaanites who were currently dwelling in the promised land. Remember, this book was written right before they crossed the Jordan River to go conquer the promised land in the book of Joshua. And he tells them, using this illustrative example, you, when your sons or daughters or mothers or fathers pass away, are not to shave off the, the forelock of your hair. You're not to cut yourselves this is not something that pleased the Lord. But the bigger point here is, I have chosen you to be distinct from the rest of the nations. And this was, first of all, out of kindness for the children of Israel, because of the love that God had for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their fathers who had been so righteous. Moses would be added to that list, as would later men like Samuel and David. It was kindness. I'm choosing you, and I'm going to save you from these these horrid practices that these other religions had that were mutilating to your own bodies. But also, secondly, as a testimony to the nations around them. I need you to maintain a specific, distinct culture from the other nations so that they can know who Jehovah God is. This is why God chose them in the first place. I chose you out of all the nations to shine my light and tell everybody who the true God was like, which is why I don't need you doing this stuff that these other people do for their false gods. Now, under the new covenant, this commandment has only intensified. Christians are chosen by God to be separate from the world and to maintain a distinct, specifically Christian culture not related so much to works and to matters that have nothing to do with the Spirit, but to maintain a distinction in some of the matters we're going to talk about tonight. And in this passage from chapter 14 through halfway through 16, Moses is going to lay out some specific provisions that are going to help maintain this opening statement, that they are to maintain a distinct culture as a treasured possession of God. And it's going to apply to us too, although, of course, in a different context. And the three things we're going to look at tonight, they were to maintain a distinct devotion to the Lord. And so are we. We are to maintain distinction in regards to our dollars. Chapter 15 is going to be all about money as a very specific example of this. And number three, that we're to maintain a distinction with our doctrine. So three Ds tonight, devotion, dollars, and doctrine. Let's keep reading. 
verse 3, down to verse 21. I believe this will be our largest section for the night. You shall not eat any abomination. Sounds reasonable. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof. They are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat of it. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that is dyed naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it. Or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. There it is again. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. That is probably another instance of pagan worship, that they believe there was some sort of magic in taking the mother's milk and boiling the goat in its own mother's milk. And uh, in any case, they weren't to do it. So Moses, in this section, reminds them of the dietary laws, which is what most people think about when they hear the book of Leviticus and so on. This was laid out in a lot of detail in Leviticus 11, and we went over it in a lot of detail there. So if you want to go back on the website and listen to that, you can. I'm not really going to dive into it again tonight. I'll just summarize for you. For a land creature, anything that had a parted hoof and chewed the cud... So no horses, you've seen horses, they have just one round hoof as opposed to something like a goat where it's split. And it also had to chew the cud. So again, horses would be out in that one. For sea critters, everything that had fins and scales. So octopus is out. For birds, pretty simple. He doesn't give a lot of specific provisions. He gives a long list of birds that they couldn't eat. Uh, it's hard also to identify what some of these specific reference would have been. But I think you can see uh, these were carrion eaters. These were scavenger birds. They were predators. Most of these are going to find a carcass and begin to pick at it, which was unclean for them. And it's not as hygienic as others would be. Now, the rationale for why God divided it this way has been debated. There are some hygienic reasons. Then there are others that don't seem to fall into that category. For our purposes tonight, all you need to worry about is that God gave them a different diet to keep them separate from the Gentiles, which is the word for nations. If you read through your Bible, even in the New Testament quite a bit, the food laws are, are a marker that separated the Jews as Jews, as Hebrews, as people of the children of Israel. This is why Daniel would not defile himself with the king's delicacies in the book of Daniel, because they were unclean. He wasn't going to eat them. He was going to maintain his distinction. Now, the Pharisees and the like took it to an ungodly extreme, where they maintained such a distinction that anybody else was excluded. And in fact, most of the people that were included were also excluded. But... Leaving the ungodly extremes out of this, Israel was to maintain its separation, its distinction from the other nations. How important was this? Well, the book of Nehemiah. Now, you've got two uh, leaders around this time, the post-exilic period. You have Ezra and Nehemiah. When Ezra came across a problem, Ezra went to the temple and wept openly. And everybody saw him weeping, and there was a massive revival. Nehemiah had a different way of dealing with things. Nehemiah 13, 23-25, In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, meaning Philistines. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God. 
saying, You shall not give your daughter to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. That's how Nehemiah handled things. I'm not waiting around. I'm going to get out and make things happen. Hey, side note, God needs both kinds of people in his church, doesn't he? Very often in the church, you have some of this kind and some of the other. And we need to learn how to get along because sometimes you need somebody to weep with you. Sometimes you need somebody to pull your hair out. <laughs> Point for today is that Nehemiah saw that they were going back to the ways of how they'd been before the exile. They were marrying their daughters to the Gentiles and they were... Uh, taking Gentile daughters for themselves. The testimony of Israel that God was trying to maintain was too important to allow to be jeopardized. God chose Israel to be the nation not only through whom he would reveal his righteousness and maintain the knowledge of who the true God is, but to prepare them and the world for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ. And so he's telling him, you've got to maintain this distinction. He's teaching the whole world a lesson about holiness. You can't be touching sin even a little bit. So men like Nehemiah and the prophets and Moses were called to remind the children of Israel to maintain this distinction. Likewise, as Christians, we are to be distinct in holiness and practice as a light to the world. We're not supposed to be like everybody else. So every comedian that wants to make fun of Christians who are a little weird and a little different, that's supposed to be that way. Look at what Jesus said in John 17. Jesus is praying now. He's speaking to his father. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is telling the father, praying to his father, Help my people to maintain their separation. It's not saying I want you to go off and live in a commune and never talk to an unbeliever. He says, but you've got to maintain the separation. He says, just like I did. Jesus walked with sinners and talked to those that were needy, but Jesus was always distinct and separate. They knew there was something different about Jesus. And for us, the food laws are no longer binding. In the Gospel of Mark, it says Jesus declared all foods clean. So even though these food laws are not binding, the principle of separation is more binding than ever. Because you see in the Old Testament, God would very often bring a Moabite or a Canaanite into his family, even to the line of David and the line of Christ. But there is no salvation apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God are a race apart. We're sojourners in a foreign land. This country, this world is not our home anymore. Our citizenship is somewhere else. So this is the distinction we are to have. So knowing that broad principle is going to show us three ways that we do this as we maintain this distinction. And the first one is verse 22 to the end of the chapter. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, meaning the place where God sets up his tabernacle, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, that is, sell it, and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. Remember, the Levites served in the tabernacle and they were not given land in the promised land. They were given certain villages. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, we might say the illegal alien, the person visiting on a green card, whatever, the fatherless and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So these are laws concerning tithes. Tithe even sounds like the word for a tenth which is what it means. 
To tithe something means to give 10%, and he's saying here, of your produce or your increase. Whatever you gain in the new year, 10% of that is to go to the Lord. Once a year, he says, you are to take your tithe, whether that's cattle, whether that's the, the fruit of the field, whatever it might be, take that to the chosen place where God would set up the tabernacle, which eventually would be Jerusalem. And he says, you either bring it just like it is, or you can sell it and bring the money. But note what he says they were to do with this yearly tithe. He says, take the money, don't put it in the treasury. He says, take the money, buy stuff to go have a party. Go buy food, go buy wine and strong drink, he even says. Go whatever you need to throw a great party so that you can celebrate what God has done throughout the year. Isn't that amazing that the Lord asked them to do that? And in verse 27 through 29, he says there is a separate provision. He says every third year, you would take the tithe and rather than bringing it to the central location, you would store it in your town. Why? So that the Levites, the sojourners, the widows and orphans, those that didn't have land and wouldn't be able to participate in the big party would be able to take of that and have a party that way. This allowed them to celebrate the provision of God, even if they themselves were not of the people of God. It was a holy responsibility of the children of Israel to provide this tithe for the poor to celebrate. Chapter 26 is going to come back and talk about that a little more. Now, what was God's purpose for this tithe ultimately? He tells them in verse 23, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Essentially, what you have here is tribute being brought to a king. When a king conquered a territory, he would often exact tribute of them. He would say, every year you have to bring me so much gold, so many grapes, so many loaves of bread, whatever it might be. And they're doing this for the Lord. The Lord was their king and they were to be devoted to him. And this is the first way that we maintain distinction as God's people. Through our devotion. You know what it means to devote something? It means to set it apart for a special purpose. And this is what we do with our lives. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Suppose you are out in a land that was for sale, and you're just you're digging a hole. Maybe you're trying to build a campfire or something, and you find a treasure chest, and it's overflowing with gold and jewels. You'll be set for life. So you cover it up, and you go back to the landowner and say, Hey, man, how much to take this thing off your hands? He goes, Well, it's going to be you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. He goes, Okay, I'll be right back. And he gets home, honey, we're selling everything. We're going to sell the house. We're going to sell the cars. Are you out of your mind? No, I'm not out of my mind. Just trust me on this one. And he sells everything and buys that field. And the guy goes, all right, it's all yours. And he rejoices in his joy because he says, I've got the treasure now. I gave up everything I had, but look at what I gained. He says, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's worth giving up everything you've got because it's so much greater than what you already have. To a Christian... Devotion means to be personally and totally separated to Jesus Christ and his word. Personally, I belong to Jesus and totally. Everything that I have, not just this part of me. Well, I'm also a Christian. I'm also this. I'm also a mom. I'm also this. No, I belong to Christ first and foremost. We are more than willing as Christians not just to tithe, but to give of our time. God, you can have my time. And sometimes we don't do a very good job of devoting our time. Say, Tyler, uh, you've gone over by three minutes. I got places to be. I got Netflix to watch, man. Isn't that funny how we're so in such a hurry sometimes to get out of things so that we can go home and put on sweatpants and do nothing? But a Christian is willing to give of his time for the Lord. Our treasure, the things we have. We're going to talk a lot about this today, so I'm just going to mention it. Our money is the Lord's. Our resources are the Lord's. Like when Naaman was healed. He says, take whatever you want. Just take it. After all that God's done for me, and even our talents, that we use the skills God has given us to serve him. And most of y'all in this room are doing exactly that here at the church. You're serving. You're finding ways to minister to the body of Christ, to free up the, the pastors and teachers to devote more of a focus to their, their job. It's a very old-fashioned idea. But we serve Jesus as the one true God. 
The relationship that you have with God is not like anything else. Just like the marriage relationship is not like any other relationship. Different rules apply, and they don't apply anywhere else. Similar with God. There are different rules between you and God, and nobody really seems to abide by them anymore. But a Christian is devoted. That's what makes us different. We don't just use religion. We don't just value religion. We are devoted to God. Isn't that what monks do? Isn't that what like holy men do? Hey, we're all holy men and women if we're in Christ Jesus. God and the gospel are the most important things to us. We are distinct in our devotion. Chapter 15, this is when it gets personal now. First six verses here. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Tell me if you wouldn't like this. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. It means every debt gets forgiven at the end of seven years. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Chapter 15 addresses many different issues related to commerce in the promised land. So for our purposes tonight, as we're talking about being distinct to the Lord, we are going to be distinct, number two, with our dollars. And this is somewhere most of us would rather God just minded his own business. But if you belong to Christ, this is his business. The first thing we're going to look at here relates to debt. Every seven years in the promised land, there was to be a release. It was on a rolling cycle. Every seven years, all debt was cleared. Debts would be forgiven. Now, there are some people that say it wasn't that the debt would be forgiven, it's that the collateral would be returned. But that seems to be a rather nuanced reading of a rather plain passage. Except for those of foreigners, because God is trying to make a distinction between the children of Israel and foreigners. And also don't forget, those foreigners could become children of God and become Israelites anytime they wanted. It was encouraged, and in fact, a lot of this was to incentivize exactly that. Now, some people might say, listen, if we're just going to forgive debts every seven years, how is the economy going to grow? The Lord says, I've got this one. I'll bless you. He says, if you do that, I will be so happy. I'll just give you whatever you want. And this reminds us of the famous proverb, the famous Dave Ramsey proverb, Proverbs 22, 7. The rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. It's interesting to read passages like this because in our society, our economy runs on credit and interest. That's how we do it. So knowing that, how are we as Christians to live in that society and be distinct with our dollars? You know, in Exodus twenty-two twenty-five, it says that Israel was not even to charge interest to one another. Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, so how many of y'all have been ever caught in the trap of student loans? Where it's like, I'm making all these payments, but all I'm doing is paying off the interest. The Lord goes, interest is illegal. <laughs> you sure you don't like the Old Testament? <laughs> So at least, how about this? If the Lord didn't even want his people charging interest to each other, how about we can at least avoid usurious rates with one another? First of all, you should avoid getting into a relationship where you're going to have a, a high interest rate for your debt, because you all know how crippling that can be. But with one another, too, or in your business, or if you're in the kind of, of field where interest is something that you negotiate and haggle over. The Christian is to be distinct and say, I'm wanting to lend you this so that it is a blessing to you, not a curse to you. Sometimes these contracts are specifically written so that the person will be trapped in the cycle of interest and never pay the loan off. A Christian should have nothing to do with that. And I don't know where most of y'all work, but maybe somebody needs to hear that. Also, notice he says, you are not to press each other, to collect it. That means don't send a bruiser over to break somebody's legs to get the money. Now, I don't know if any of y'all are into that. Don't if you're into that. But 
We should avoid harsh collection methods. We should, we should, well, you know, my hands are tied. You know, it's got to go to court now. You know, Paul told the Corinthians that if you let somebody borrow something and they don't give it back to you, he said it would be better for you just to let it go and take the loss than to shame the name of Christ by going to court over that. If you're telling the whole world, number one, Christians can't handle their disputes. And number two, God is not able to provide for all of my needs according to his riches and glory. These things only perpetuate the problem. I could also add to that the person that lends so that they can have something over somebody. Pay it back when you can. Meaning, don't ever pay it back. Because I really like to be able to say, well, don't forget, you owe me money. Don't do that. And if you cannot avoid these kinds of temptations, then don't lend people anything. Just give them things. Now, there can be circumstances where it's appropriate to borrow and to lend and to repay back. The Bible is very clear about that. But I think the best version of this just says, if I think you legitimately have a need and you legitimately need help, I'm just going to give this to you. Whether as an individual, as an investor, as a borrower, how we handle debt is to be distinct in the church with an eye towards righteousness? Are the things I'm investing in or borrowing money for, are they going towards righteous purposes? Is love involved? Can I honestly say that I have loved this person with whom I'm having a financial transaction? That's how the church does it. It's distinct when it comes to matters of debt. Number two of point number two, verse seven. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care. Watch out, you might say, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you. I command you. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Well, coming off this discussion of debt, we're still talking about being distinct with our dollars now. He obligates people who are well off to lend and support the needy. He says, if you got the money, do not withhold it. And he warns them specifically about grumbling and saying, well, you know, he's asking for money. But the year of release is in eight months. There's no way he's going to pay this back in eight months, which means I'm going to be out all this money. So no, he can't have it. God goes, that's a sin. To withhold from somebody because you're worried about how it's going to affect you, who's really in need. Now, he said before, there will be no poor in your land. But then in here he says, there will always be poor in the land. This is where Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 26, 11, when he, uh, Judas was complaining about how Mary poured out the alabaster flask on Jesus, he said, hey, the poor you'll always have with you. Jesus is referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 11 when he said that. So which is it? Where there'll be no poor or will there always be poor? Well, God says, if you are walking perfectly in the, in the commandments that I've given you, then poor, poverty will be eradicated. The system I'm giving you will take care of all that. But he also, as the Lord is, holds up the ideal, but also holds up something that is realistic. But he refuses to let his people take it lying down. Well, there's always going to be poor. I can't help them all. God goes, well, help as many as you can, because I can do anything. And God will bless us. During the reign of Solomon, it said silver was as common as stone. God blessed the land. So still speaking of dollars, how are we to be distinct in how we deal with those in poverty in the church? Starting with this, Christians are not to be harsh or critical of the poor. Let me say that again. You are not to be harsh or critical of the poor. You are to be sympathetic and helpful. Just in case you think I'm making this up, Jesus in Matthew 5.42, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
Jesus' brother, in James chapter 2, said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Jesus and his family were poor people. They probably ran into quite a bit of that. We are to make it our personal responsibility to help those we encounter who are down and out, especially within the church, which means you've got to know the people in the church, which means you've got to stay around after the service to talk to people, to get to know them, to pray with them so that you can build those friendships. You've got to go to a home fellowship. You've got to serve on a ministry team to build these relationships so that when someone's down, you notice what's going on. Well, I'm having car trouble. Help them out. My student loans are just breaking me right now. Help them out if you can. I would love to see a revival sweep through the church of those who are well off in God's house just paying off the student loans of all of God's people. How amazing, what a testimony would that be? Ah, I can hear y'all don't like that already. <laughs> Forget the politics of it, guys. People are desperate for this stuff. I can't make the rent this month. Then you give them rent money. I won't be able to get my daily Starbucks. Well, that's fine. Or anything else. You are to give to those who ask of you. Now, somebody's saying right now, well, there's a lot of people that shouldn't be getting help from somebody. They, they are not working hard. They're not doing what the Bible says. Paul says whoever does not work should not eat. There are a lot of people trying to scam folks out there. All that is true. Not everyone is deserving. But there are so many who are. Go looking for them, Christian. Isn't it like the basic Christian thing that we give charity to the poor and needy? Don't farm that out to parachurch ministries and certainly don't farm it out, well, my taxes pay for different relief programs. You know who else said that? Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember that? Are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Now my taxes pay for that and that's, that's what it can be. Hopefully we've learned the lesson better than him. The church should not rely on government programs to fix poverty. As, and most of us I think would agree that these sometimes can do more harm than good. They become addictive for people. They trap them in a cycle. They incentivize things that are not good. I've had been on all sorts of assistance, and I'll tell you, when you start to come out of that, and you say, okay, you're not going to qualify for food stamps anymore, it feels like a major pay decrease. And I could totally see why somebody would say, you know what, let me just hang back and keep this stuff. We don't farm things out. We handle them internally in the church. Somebody needs help, you help, especially if you are well off and have a lot. You don't need a second boat. You need to help somebody that's having trouble making their rent this month. There will always be poor people, but Christians are to be distinct in how we treat them with love, with liberality, not trusting somebody else to do it, you taking personal responsibility. And will you be taken advantage of every once in a while? Yeah, maybe, but... Didn't Jesus come and die for all of us, knowing that some people would take advantage of his grace and walk all over it? Moving on now to verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he's well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired worker, he served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. These provisions now are related to release from slavery. And we've talked about this at great length in Exodus chapter 21. This is primarily, almost entirely, referring to debt slavery. What this meant was, and this actually was fairly common through society until not that long ago, you couldn't pay your debts. What you could do is you could sell your labor for up to seven years. The person would give you the money, you pay off your debt, and therefore you're going to work for them uh, without wages for this amount of time. We might call that an indentured servant. Many people did that coming to America. They couldn't pay for the, uh, for the fee to come over, so they say, I'll work for this guy for seven years, 
And then when it's over, I can, I can go make a, a life for myself. A Hebrew slave or servant would have been released in the seventh year, in that year of release, right? And was to be sent off, not just, okay, your time's up, off you go. He said, no, throw a going away party when your slave has finally reached the end of his term. Sent out with a celebration from well furnished from the master supply. Give them everything they need to go out and start a new life, to have their own farm, to have their own household. They were to be sympathetic. Notice how he says, and it's not a hard thing for you, meaning I don't want to hear a word of complaint out of you when it's time for one of your servants to go free. Oh, they were, what am I going to do now? He goes, that person just worked for you for half what his normal wage would have been. I don't want to hear it. You've benefited from, from it for this long. You can deal with that. He says, remember how y'all were slaves in Egypt? He says, so you know what it's like. So don't oppress people this way. Now, those that were not Hebrews could be held as perpetual slaves, but I remind you again that they could become a Hebrew at any time. And this was likely to incentivize exactly that. I'm not going to get into all the details. We've talked about them before. But this is unfortunately a shame to our own society and our own country. Let me give you an example of what was not to be done. The Indiana Territory, before it became a slave, uh, before it became a state, excuse me, was under what was called the Northwest Ordinance, which meant any state that is made out of this territory will never have slavery in it. Well, then when people started to move in and they had slaves, they were supposed to set them free. So what they did, to our great shame, was they made a law that said, okay, you, can, you have to free your slave, but you can indenture them, meaning they have to work for you for a certain number of years, you can let them go. Sounds good, until people started giving their, their freed slaves 99-year indentures, which means you're not going free ever. And that was horrid and shame on us. People would, you know, I've been reading the biography of Frederick Douglass, which is, he was a brother in the Lord and a, and a prophet of God, in my opinion, but man, that story is just hard to read. How about how he was sent off to a slave breaker who was supposed to beat him down and break his spirit. And then every Sunday, they'd have Bible study together. What a terrible testimony to the church. Now, to his great credit, he came out of that and said, he didn't say, forget it, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. He went out and said, that's not what the Bible says, guys. So that's not how it was to be done. The Lord is saying, so the reason I bring that up is because many people will say, well, slavery's in the Bible. Yeah, but not like that it wasn't. But this principle for us can extend beyond that of having a servant or a slave, which many of us are not going to have, praise the Lord. And most of us are not rich enough to even have servants in the home. But it relates to all manner of authority. Colossians 4 verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul's like, I, I, I don't care what the law says. You got somebody working for you or who you technically own according to the law, God's not going to treat y'all any different when you get to heaven. So you don't treat them any different either. The Lord gives us a picture in this chapter of an authority figure who is so kind that it's even possible that if a servant's time was to go free, they might want to stay. And you think, why would anybody ever want to do that? Well, again, you've got to think of the picture God is painting here. God gave all kinds of laws and prohibitions against abuse, but he's saying, I want you to be so good to the people that come to work for you, even as debt slaves, that when it's time to go, they say, I want to stay. I want to stay here forever. First of all, I'm better off in your house. I'd rather keep this job in your household than go back out on my own again. And also, I've come to love you and love your family and love the people I want to stay. We say that would never happen. It did happen. That's why the Lord made provision for it. Because this master would be seeking not just his own good, but the good of those that were under his authority. How can we apply this, man, in our business relationships? It is not just about the bottom line. It is about discipleship. It is about love. A Christian boss should be the greatest person to work for. Unfortunately, many Christians, so-called, will use the Bible and use Christian language in order to squeeze the last bit of work out of somebody and then say, you have to submit to me because the Bible says you're supposed to submit or I'm going to remove my covering from you if you don't come in this weekend and work. I got Christ's covering. Thank you very much. I don't need yours. 
especially if you've been poor and you've gone up through the ranks or you have family members who were, you can sympathize with those that are on the come up. The guy that's got his first job and doesn't really quite know what he's doing and isn't really on time and messes stuff up. Rather than being a tyrant and a bear about it, make it a point of discipleship and say, I'm going to take you under my wing and show you. And I'm going to cover where you fall short because I know you've got a whole life ahead of you. And this is going to be a part of your life. And I want to make it a pleasant experience so that when you leave here, you are better for it. And not just because you had to learn how to deal with me the whole time. To make it easy for people to advance. You ever been in a job where your boss was threatened by everybody that started doing real good? And so if you started coming up, he would find ways to undercut you. He'd remove your hours or he'd start rumors about you. I've worked in those places before. A good leader is constantly working to prepare his followers to go on without him. Whether that's in the church, whether that's a parent, whether that's in the workplace. That I'm not seeing you as owned by me. I'm seeing myself as having an opportunity to bless and serve you. What did Jesus say? Whoever would be great in God's kingdom, let him first be the servant of all. And when they do finally move on to celebrate, that kind of man will never want for friends. If you're going to treat people that way. Do it the other way. People will take every chance they can to undercut what you're trying to do. Verse 19 now, still talking about distinction in our dollars, and this is going to be the last little sub-point here. All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock, you shall dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock, meaning you will get no profit out of it. You shall eat it, you and your household, before the Lord your God, year by year, at the place that the Lord will choose. But if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind, or has any serious blemish, whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Well, what do you do with it then? You shall eat it within your towns. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it as though it were a gazelle or a deer. Only you shall not eat its blood. Gross. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. So the last provision here related to the economy is this ancient law of the firstborn. Going all the way back to Exodus 13, when the Lord passed over the houses and didn't strike down the firstborn of Israel, but struck down the firstborn of Egypt. He passed this law. Every animal that was born first was not to be worked, was not to be shorn, it was not to uh, be used for profit in any way, but it would be taken to the tabernacle, sacrificed for a feast before the Lord. Remember the sacrifice, you would sacrifice pieces of the animal and the rest of it would be barbecued for you to take home for yourself. And it was an animal that was blemished, you know, if it was lame, if it was blind, it would still not be used for work. You would eat it at home. So our final distinction in relation to dollars concerns the question of how we handle prosperity. The firstborn represented the best, the increase, the start of something new, the new beginning. Do we continue to serve God even then? Ask yourself. Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You ever get a whole lot of stuff and get all excited about it, but then you have one of those moments where you look around and you go, oh, what did I spend all that money for? It's just stuff. I don't even know if I like this anymore. That's when Jesus told the story of the rich fool whose harvest increased. And so he said, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. I'm going to fill it up with all this food. Now I won't have to work for a long, long time. And the Lord said, but tonight you're going to die. So you didn't use that, that increase for anything related to the kingdom of heaven. So what good is it going to do you? Reminds us that we are still to serve the Lord with our dollars when things go well. So many take a time of increase in prosperity as a chance to gain more and relax their devotion in matters of finance. You know, when you're poor, you're, you're kind of scared not to tithe. Because I can't take any more trouble. Because if the Lord is going to come against me, then we're really messed up. So we're tithing. <laughs> then you get a little extra money and you're like, well, I mean, you know, 10% now would just be a little excessive. I mean, are we really sure that the leaders of that church know what they're doing with it? And I mean, you know, we can set it aside and, but, you know, we'll put it in a savings account and maybe the Lord will show us what to, what to do with it. And it always turns out to be like a trip to Hawaii or something like that. <laughs> Sometimes we overextend ourselves in our attempts to get more 
So what happens is we are trapped in our riches. Because rather than trying to leverage these things for the kingdom of God, we became greedy and covetous. And now we're stretched so thin that there's no room for anything to go to the Lord. And we can't even enjoy what we have. But the Lord requires us to give the firstborn, meaning even in your money and even in your blessings, Jesus is still the number one priority. I've read this stat before. I don't have it in front of me. But if every member of the evangelical church in the United States of America were simply to tithe 10% of their income, no extra blessings, no, no love offerings, none of that, just 10%, every church budget would be fully funded, Every missionary budget would be fully funded, and every parachurch ministry would be fully funded. Just 10%. And the Bible tells us that we ought to give hilariously, not just that little bit. So, well, there's a lot. I'm, trying to, I'm working something out. I'm trying to leverage a big deal here. And God goes, remember me first. It's a shame that Christianity is often seen like a religion for poor people. The down and outs. Now, that's what the church is for. Many people leave the church when they gain a certain level of status. This church doesn't match my life anymore. I've got to go to the church where all the rich and fancy people go. Or they achieve their goals. Some people, whenever they're single, they're in church. And then whenever they have a girlfriend, they leave. So they got what I needed. God answered my prayer, so I'm gone now. But in our prosperity, we have the opportunity to do more. And so, more we should do as it increases. Our devotion to God, point number one, is reflected in many ways. But as Moses pointed out in this chapter, through our dollars, point number two. Now, why would we devote ourselves to the Lord, even to the point of changing the way we handle money? The next chapter is going to explain why. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. Keeps coming back to that. That God is going to pick a spot in the promised land, which was Jerusalem eventually. You shall eat no leavened bread with it, no yeast. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you. So many times the Lord said, you don't have to come all the way to the tabernacle or later the temple. Here he's saying for Passover, you do need to come. Verse 8. Verse 6, sorry. But at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. This next section through verse 17 deals with the three mandatory feasts that every Israelite man was required to attend. The women and children were not, although highly encouraged. So you're going to see this later that uh, Elkanah will go to the feast, but Hannah will stay home while she's nursing baby Samuel in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. And each of these feasts was fulfilled in Christ. We talked about them all in great detail back in chapter 23 of Leviticus. You can go listen to it if you'd like to. But this, again, is to remind us of our distinction as a people. The first one is our distinction in devotion, meaning the highest priority of our life, specifically expressed through our dollars, how we handle money. And the reason we do that is because of, number three, our doctrine. We are distinct in our doctrine. First one here is Passover in the month of Abib. Earlier, it is called the month of Nisan, which has led some people to believe that perhaps this was uh, edited to be, uh, be corresponding to the generation that was reading it. Or perhaps Abib was just another name for Nisan. Who knows? But it would be celebrated with the sacrifice of a lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover was one day, and then you had seven days, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread directly after it. So they're often spoke of together, two feasts in one. And it would end with a solemn assembly. Passover was meant to commemorate the night of the exodus from Egypt, when they put the blood of the lamb over the doors. You remember the story? And didn't have time to let the bread rise. And then they had to rush 
out of Egypt. One thing that the movies often get wrong, it's often a very happy, slow procession. He's like, Lord is like, you don't even have time to let your bread rise. Hightail it out of there. Why? Because Pharaoh's coming. Jesus Christ was our Passover lamb. When John saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus' blood was shed so that death might pass over us. And we must partake of his body and blood by faith in order to be saved. The Last Supper, which was the Passover meal, at the evening, just like Moses had said, at they were eat, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus gave new meaning to Passover, or shall we say he revealed what the meaning of Passover always was, but it had not been revealed yet. Our first distinct doctrine that we keep, and there will be three of them, is that of the cross. Why would I keep distinct from the world, devote my life to Christ, and even affecting the way I handle my money? Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the death and resurrection of our Lord. The incarnate Son of God willingly went to the cross to die as a sacrifice to propitiate the wrath of God. What does that mean? To take everything that the wrath of God should have poured out on your sin upon himself. It's a substitute, a replacement, a sacrifice to pay the debt that you owed. And we would be remiss not to mention the resurrection which was on the third day. Yesu ahulile. They say in Uganda, Jesus is alive. He's still alive. You cannot pay for your own sins. You require Jesus to do that. To be received by faith alone. We sang it tonight. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. That's where salvation comes. That's the first doctrine that we hold distinct. That motivates us is the cross. Why am I devoted to Christ even down to the way I handle my money? Because of the cross. Amen? Verse 9. You shall count seven weeks, meaning after Passover. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. This was later formalized to be seven weeks after the day of Passover. Verse 10. Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a free will offering from your hand. Meaning nothing specific but you bring it. You decide what you're going to offer to the Lord, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant. Don't you love that? There was no upstairs, downstairs with the children of Israel. The servants and the slaves celebrated with the children and the wife and the husband. The Levite who's within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. The Feast of Weeks, also known as Pentecost, because seven weeks, 49 days. The festival was on the 50th day, Pentecost. So at the beginning of the harvest, seven weeks after it started, they were to come to worship with a tribute no, nothing specific, just you bring the best of what you've been given as much as you can and celebrate before God, making provision for the poor and for the landless, not separating themselves by class, not separating themselves by gender, but celebrating together. All of God's holidays were parties. Have you noticed that? The beginning of God's harvest in the world began on the day of Pentecost when Jesus began to bring in all those who were to be saved. It happened 50 days after Passover, after Jesus had risen from the dead, 10 days after his ascension. The book of Acts tells us, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The day of Pentecost, after Jesus was crucified, saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, the promise of the Father, Jesus called it, as prophesied by Joel, in the second chapter of his book, 
This also saw the first evangelistic message ever preached by scared old Peter. And 3,000 people were saved and baptized that day. Why do we remain distinct from the world in our devotion and with our dollars? Because of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes us to have power to fulfill the Christian life and to save souls. If we're looking at it this way, the cross and the resurrection is the past aspect of salvation. Justification. But right now, Pentecost represents the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, sanctification, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the power to evangelize, communion with God the Father himself. Why would we go elsewhere? Why would I devote my life to somebody else? Why would I be stingy with my money when God has sent a Spirit to dwell in my heart and totally transform my life? If you have not encountered the Holy Spirit... You ought to. If you have not been filled with the Holy Spirit since you believed, you should be baptized in the Spirit tonight. There is no better reason to remain distinct than when you have, as Hebrews said, tasted of the Holy Spirit. And then number three, starting in verse 13. You shall keep the feast of booths. You may have the translation tabernacles. I prefer that one. Seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. I'll just say in passing, my parents do an excellent job every year of inviting people to their house for Thanksgiving who do not have anybody else to celebrate with. And it's something that we all ought to emulate. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Man, I could just preach that. I'm going to bless you so that you can come worship me, not somberly and quietly, but celebrating so that you may be altogether joyful. I have to bookmark that one and talk about it later. The third feast here is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. What's a tabernacle? It's a tent, a little booth, but booths just sounds funny to me. <laughs> feast of Tabernacles at the end of the harvest. So the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was at the beginning of the harvest. And then the Feast of Tabernacles is at the end. They were to come and celebrate for a whole week, staying in a little tabernacle, in a little booth, a little hut, that they would make out of branches because that's how they traveled when they were in the wilderness. It was to remind their kids and tell them the story. This is how our ancestors traveled through the wilderness, just like this. All of these were celebrations of what God has done. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which was to represent that the journey was over and we're here. The Feast of Tabernacles in the Bible represents the coming kingdom when we will rest from our sojourn, sin will be done away with. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes and the devil will be burning forever in the lake of fire. Zechariah 14, verse 16, says everyone who survives, meaning survives the final conquest of the Messiah, of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem, shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. We're still going to be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in the Millennial Kingdom as we remember what it was like before Christ returned and we entered into the rest of our Lord. Jesus Christ has made provision for sin, Passover. He has inaugurated the harvest and empowers us to work in it right now. Remember, in between Pentecost and Tabernacles is a harvest. That's where the church is living right now. But when the harvest is over, Jesus will come again. He will establish his kingdom that will last for a thousand years. We have the hope of heaven that this world is not the end, that justice will come, joy will come, <laughs> altogether joyful. That is why we maintain our distinction, because we're living for the last days, not this day. We're living for the days that will be glorious with our Lord. The doctrine of the kingdom empowers us and motivates us to do that. So we are distinct in our doctrine through the cross represented by Passover, the Holy Spirit and the ongoing work of the church through Pentecost and the coming kingdom represented by the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why. Why are we 
distinct in our devotion to the Lord, represented by how we use our money, because of what we believe, that Jesus died and rose and is coming again. Verse 16, three times a year, all your men shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. It reminds him at the end of the ongoing obligation of these things, that you need to maintain your distinction throughout all your generations. We likewise as Christians under the new covenant are distinct from the world. First, in our devotion to Christ, our highest priority, holding nothing back for ourselves, is Jesus. And this is exemplified by distinction number two in our dollars. Lots of ways, but the way that we even spend our money handled with love and charity rather than greed and selfishness. And the reason we do that is because of our distinct number three doctrine, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. It's all pretty basic, but it's no burden to be reminded of these things. They bring us back to where we should be. They remind us of what's most important. And you know, the longer you go ignoring and avoiding the fact that you're supposed to be distinct and live differently than everybody else, the harder it gets to come back because you're, you're not at home in either world. You can't serve two masters. So you're pulled back and forth. So come back. If you need to come back and remind yourself, oh yeah, I'm different. Because of you? No, because of Jesus. And I'm not going to try to have it both ways in how I spend my money or in any other thing. I'm going to commit myself totally to the Lord. You are a treasured possession of the Most High God. Bought with his own son's precious blood. Is he not worth all of your devotion? From your wallet to your marriage to your career? Are not the glorious doctrines of the gospel sufficient reason for such devotion? Then let us be distinct. Distinct. 